What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Jamila Hunter, the SVP of Current Series and Alternative Programming at Freeform. This was so much fun. I have so much respect for Jamila. I have known her for many years now, but I've never had the chance to kind of go through her whole backstory and her entire career story. She was at NBC at the dawn of the reality TV era. She was at that network when broadcast was just starting to break into the genre. And she's also one of the few executives in this town on the buyer side that has been able to cross over between scripted and unscripted at an extremely high level. She was the head of comedy at ABC Network before leaving to work with Kenya Barris, the creator of Blackish, and now she finds herself at Freeform. We talked about her stops at Bravo, where she at one point had a crisis of conscience working in reality TV and what led her to leave and go to Scripted. We also talked about OWN, and we have a great Oprah story for you. This is my sit down with Jamila Hunter. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed our email exchange we had leading up to this because as I recall, I emailed you and I was like, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? I would really love to have you on this. And I think your response was, okay, don't hate me. What is this? And you have a podcast. <laughs> and then, Sounds about right. And then I explained to you what it was and the other guests that I've had on and you were like, wait, why is it taking you so long to ask me to come on this? All sounds about right. That's, that tracks for my personality for sure. But we're here now, Jimmy. That's what matters. We're here now. Uh, I'm in my garage. Where are you right now? I am in my room slash office. Okay. So you've got, you've got like a good workspace figured out during this time. Yeah, good or bad. My husband's in the garage. So I guess you can flip a... Co- and by the way, we have an actual office that neither of us use and a guest room. So as I'm saying this out loud, I'm really realizing that makes no sense at all. But what are you going to do? There are two extra rooms in the house that are air conditioned and your husband is in the garage. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is your husband a carpenter? No, he teaches and his students mock him for it. They say, Dr. Green, why are you in the garage? I don't know. (laughs) Has he done? I don't know why I've made these life choices. Has he done something with the garage? No. We outfitted the back office for him, like as a music studio, a whole setup. I think, honestly, I'm too loud, and I think that's why he went to the garage. (laughs) I think that's really actually the truth of it. It's very sweet of him not to just tell you that. Like, I I can see right now you're real- passive-aggressive, whatever (laughs) you want to say about our marriage. (laughs) Does he teach music? No, he teaches middle school, math and science, real stuff. That is awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to this because I've known you for a number of years and I don't know like your whole backstory and trajectory and and all that good stuff. Like when, when you were growing up, was it always TV for you? Was that something you always know you wanted to do or were you on another track? When I was a young girl, I was, I, I don't, I know that I would say young, but definitely college I got on the TV track. So, you know, not like I was I wasn't like your old boss, Ben, where he was doing, you know, schedules in his bedroom in fifth grade. Um, But I pretty quickly, like I've only done entertainment and television and always TV. Like I've never been a film person. It's always been more about the immediacy of TV. And that was even before streaming. And the fact that these were stories and characters that people choose to bring into their homes. 
on a regular basis. And that for me was always what I was drawn to about storytelling for sure and television specifically. I always think about that as well. I always tell people the reason I gravitated towards TV was because I was the youngest of three. And I'm just going to riff for a little bit, so I'll give you more time to eat your salad. Riff, do see, it. See, see, I'm get, Jamila's trying to get in a, a lunch break right now <laughs> while we're doing this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give her a moment while I uh, compare notes. I fell in love with TV because I had an older brother and older sister. They were always arguing. My parents, not so much a happy marriage. They were always kind of arguing. But I realized the only time that we could all be in the same room together and be happy and enjoy each other's company for the most part was when we're all gathered around the television. So it made it, I saw how it changed the temperature in a household. And I do think that had influence in, in why I gravitated towards the media myself. Hmm. What for your, so this for you was like your first, is this like you came to this really young too, this industry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't like, again, not like Ben making, you know, broadcast schedules in my bedroom or, or doing anything like that. But I, I think I knew at a young age in some form I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the entertainment space and the storytelling space. For some time, I thought it might be sports reporting, or something like that. And this then, is it, man. We're gonna get you there with this podcast. <laughs> if sports ever come back <laughs> out of the bubble, yeah, no, I mean, gonna that, be there. I, it wasn't until like after college I think I realized, yeah, I if I do sports for a living, I'm gonna grow to love. I'm gonna grow to actually hate sports. Because right. it'll, be, it'll be the same thing every day. And I've always loved the variety of shows and subjects and things I get to learn about, you know, kind of being in the broader space. I'll just say, because this is directly related, I, with the sports thing, my first jo- couple jobs were with the Olympics when they were in Atlanta, because I was in college then. Wow. And a lot of my very good friends still, by the way, work in sports television And it's kind of like what you said, where I was like, oh, this is cool, but I do not love sports this much. (laughs) Like to be, that's all you're doing all day. Wasn't for me, but all of my uh, really close friends from college that were working and training in the Olympics, it's still what they do. I have friends in Atlanta, you know, that are working on the basketball stuff now, actually. Mm. Um, Hi, sorry. Can you edit out my daughter who's... Nope, stays in, stays in. (laughs) She's in. But by the way, the basketball, can we just talk about how the whole NBA bubble? The bubble, man. It's a triumph. It's crazy. It's a triumph that I had stopped being obsessed with the people, the fake people in the stands, because for the first couple games, that's all I could look at (laughs) was like whose faces were on the fake, on the people back there. But it's amazing. They've held it together. Nobody's sick. Except for that guy who ordered chicken wings or whatever. <laughs> I mean, Lou Williams, who wanted uh, chick, who wanted chicken wings from, ma- from from a strip club from Magic City, God which is six it, hours man. away. Jesus! But that's the only one. Like other than that, they freaking pulled it off, or are pulling it off, I should say. Where did you go to college? Um, so I went to college in Atlanta. Uh, not obviously, but uh, Spelman College, so right. all women, predominantly black college. And as I said, it was literally when the Olympics were there in 96, which is the year I graduated. So there was a lot of investment from the Olympic Committee and NBC in programs to train young people to work during sports because mm-hmm. they were going to be in the country. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, lots of different opportunities to intern. I've pulled cable at pretty much any sporting event you can think of. 
They were not glamorous jobs we were doing. But again, it was a great opportunity to see like up close and personal what it takes to get stuff made on a quick turnaround. Still one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. But as you said, for me, I wasn't like that passionate about sports. Yeah. And the people that do Olympics still, they do them at that point. Well, NBC still has winter and summer. You know, the folks we were working with, like they, when summer was over, they started prepping for winter and for the packages and traveling. And my friend produces a primetime show still to this day and travels the world, but she loves sports. Were you a comms major? I was an English major. Spelman does not have a comms department. We're working on it. Um, but the na- one of the neighboring schools, Clark Atlanta, where Kenya Barris, who created Blackish, went, um, Clark has a mass comms department. So I took basically enough courses where I could have had a minor in communications at Clark. And then, as I said, I was interning with the Olympic Committee and with NBC. And I graduated early and I was working for the Olympics uh, my senior year. Like, my best wow. friend and I literally missed half of the graduation activities because we were working. <clears throat> I still tease her because I had to like speak at some graduation event and she wasn't there because she was like at a gymnastics event. I don't even know. And I was like, you missed my speech, man. We don't get graduation back. Um, but it was a good time to be in the city. It was a really fun time. 96. Is that Michael Johnson? Yeah, was it? It was Muhammad Ali lighting the torch. Yep. That's right. I feel like that's Michael Johnson. It probably was. It's, it's either Michael We're Johnson a long or time ago. maybe Donovan Bailey. Uh, but yeah, that was a great a era. A lot of years. Jimmy, you were like six. I was, I was in high school. I was right behind you. <laughs> I was 12. I was right behind you in high school. That's funny. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, though, because I wanted, I wanted to get into this. I had, Ga- I had Jeff Gaspin on the podcast and, and you, were, you were mentioned in that episode. And I always feel like there's like, in our industry, whether it's scripted or unscripted, I feel like there are like classes, right? Uh-huh, that's true. Just like yeah. in like high school and college. And like people that I would consider part of like my class or my era, people came up at the same time. It would be like, from the reality circles, at least it would be like, you know, Egal Svets over at um, Discovery now and like Matt Shanfield and maybe Kevin Bartell. And like there's, there's many others, like Cameron Cattison and uh, Amir and other folks. But like for you, like who was like the class coming up for you? <laughs> I love that you're going to make me name my old class. I feel like, like, like Jen O'Connell is like part of your class, right? Jen's in my, yeah, Jen. I was like, you've had most of, did Dinsmore do your show already? Dinsmore? No. Like, yeah, Let Jason, me tell you something. You haven't done Jason yet? Let me tell you something what? about Jason. I'm going to call Jason Dinsmore out right Ooh, now. Me Jason. and Jason, me and Jason had an amazing hour-long conversation in the New Orleans airport flying back from real screen this year where Jason basically told me he has listened to every episode of this podcast that he really enjoys it which I appreciate and I have asked him before can you please come on and then he says no but then he basically tells me everything in an hour-long conversation that the podcast would have been and it's it would have been amazing because Jason has an incredible backstory I don't, I don't know. Do you know, you know about his college experience and whatnot? I don't know. Do I? He went to like a Bible college because he thought he was going to be- Oh yeah, I did know that. He thought he was going to be like a pastor. Yeah, Yeah, I did know that. So it's like a really, anyway, so no, I have not had Dinsmore on, but he is definitely- Why is he not? Okay. Well, when he listens to this episode, Jason, do the podcast. Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else that listens to the podcast? 
Anybody else that listens to the podcast, give, give Jason <laughs> the more podcast. a Tell him. Yes. I'm going to text him now and say, do it. I started doing it in NBC. Jason just the other day told the story that he covered my desk for a week, which I don't even think that's true, but he might have. <laughs> but like literally NBC had not done anything unscripted. Like Zucker bought the weakest link when Gaspin came over mm-hmm. from VH1. So I, there was an executive named Kurt Sharp. I don't know where Kurt is now, but Kurt was there doing, it was the only executive doing unscripted. And when Zucker came over and Gaspin, they were like, we need to do more. And Jen O'Connell and I were doing TV movies (laughs) and they said to us, we don't need those anymore. What are you gonna do with your lives? No, they didn't say that. But we said that to ourselves (laughs) because we were like, we're young. Like we got to get the heck out of this. Um, so I would say Jen and I kind of bridged literally as like the TV movie business was transitioning out. I went to Unscripted first and did both at NBC under Gaspin. So we like Fear Factor, I think they had just bought Weakest Link. Maybe we done anyway, it was like the first versions of NBC getting into the game. Were you guys they were very so- much doing the self-contained game? They weren't, they didn't want to spend a ton of money. It was more about being like cost efficient, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you guys were kind of like fourth in the water in terms oh, of reality? for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like CBS had Survivor, like Gen Maynard was over there doing his thing. The Bachelor was going at ABC. So Andrea Wong was at ABC. And that was very much when reality was seen as like garbage, like trashy. Mm-hmm. Like remember when, well, you're young, but Millionaire was like running like five days a week on ABC Somebody called it crack cocaine. You know, everybody was like looking down at it like this pejorative, horrible, drunk teenager in your house. Um, you're laughing, but I'm super serious. But has that and changed? NBC, well, here's I mean, what I'll say. As an, as an, out, as an insider outsider, as yeah. somebody who went to scripted, right? Yeah. And has kind of come back around a little bit. And to me, looking at NBC, where you have shows like The Voice and World of Day, like where a lot of their tent pole shows are unscripted versus when I was there and they literally treated us like we were like, they had to sneak us in the back door. It is very different in terms of the financials that they spend on it and in terms of what it does for the brand of the network. Because again, our stuff was like getting a young demographic but it wasn't the West Wing. The mm-hmm. patina of it wasn't mm-hmm. seen as quality. Mm-hmm. So it was like their dirty secret, if that makes sense. No, it, it does. But I think even to this day, there is still great resentment from the writers towards the reality TV space. Like, there is, I, but they're all watching The Housewives. They no, all I know. No, I know that. And watch it all yeah. day. No, they, they will watch it. But I think, and I get it, like the more writers see cable networks and networks in general that are like 80% reality TV content, like, of course they're going to be resentful. So, but, but still, even though there are amazing marquee, beautiful shows like the voice and world of dance and got talent and, and others, we still know how the scripted community for the most part does view reality TV. I mean, and I love having this conversation with you because you're one of the only people in town I could have this conversation with because you've, You've, I think, I honestly, I think you and Gaspin as buyers, I was thinking about this leading, leading up to the conversation. I think you and Jeff Gaspin as buyers have the most experience on both sides of the fence than anybody else I can think of. Am I, am I wrong? And no, there's somebody else on both sides. 
as a buyer? I don't know. I got to think about it. It's just Friday, so my brain's not always there. But you, so you're meaning including scripted. That's what you mean. Yes. Buyers. And buyer. Buyers, yeah. buyers that have done both scripted and unscripted to the level that both of you have. I know there's well, many, producers, many producers that have gone across both. Right. I guess that's where I'm like, maybe, maybe. Yeah, you know what I'll say? Johnny Davis, maybe. Because, you know, Johnny, has Johnny done your podcast yet? Or is no. he not? Because he's now firmly scripted. Yeah, no, he hasn't. Should he be? Because Johnny was in Darnell's group at Fox. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he he was in Darnell, Mike Darnell. So I guess Johnny's kind of my class because Johnny and I both wound up going to scripted comedy around the same time as comedies were cratering, like scripted comedies, sitcoms, and shows like The Simple Life and The Osbournes, like the sort of comedic, unscripted shows were taking off. Mm. And we were both not recruited, but like somebody came to me, I wasn't looking for a job. And I think similar with Johnny, or I don't know if you know, like Susan Levison was another one who went from Mike Darnell's group to scripted at a period, like anytime people ask me, like, how did you make that leap? And again, I'm like, I wasn't looking to do it, to be honest with you. (laughs) Like I was not that person that looked at scripted programming, like that's gotta be me. Again, I was whatever age I was, 23, 24, I don't know. I watched reality TV shows. I didn't watch TV movies. Mm. So when NBC started doing reality, I went to Gaspin and was like, that's what I watch. I want to do that. I'm not watching Mother May I Sleep With, you know, whatever, like, (laughs) whatever the TV movies were we were working at the time. So I say that to say this, and look, you know this also, Jimmy, like, there's a lot of freedom in the time I was doing Unscripted because it was uncharted territory. So the sort of things that we did or greenlit or made, I don't even think you can do that anymore. Like everything needs so much more proof of concept. Yes. Like literally we gave straight up series to people off of like a log line. A hundred percent we did that. But let me ask you, let me, looking back on that now, at the time, obviously, I mean, you didn't know any different, right? Because the bar, the bar obviously has been raised over the years for the materials that you need to sell a show. But looking back, did you need more than the log line if the idea was clean? No, not really. No. Right? The, I, I'll put it this way. The ones we bought off of a log line, to your point, were clear ideas. Right? Well, that's, but, and I think that was the yeah. era where you still had just one-liner right. ideas because it was the 1.0 right. version of reality right. television. So right. most ideas were just one sentence. Right. And you were like, yeah, let's do this. Right. Um, so no, you didn't. But what I would say is <laughs> there also was not as mature of a talent pool of people to execute those ideas. Right. So we all had our share of learnings as everyone and their mother came in saying they produced um, the Osbournes and you just quickly learned that MTV like inflated everybody's credits and everybody was the showrunner on that and they were really, you know, like there was a period where all of us were just buying stuff and like handing straight to series orders to people who just had a credit of like have even walked on the survivor island because you just didn't have the talent pool that there is now so i think there's a lot about it that's different if that makes sense yeah from the maturity of the form to the people who have the tools to make it um but i will say what was again genuinely fun that you just don't get back is like oddly enough for me and i don't know if gas and i've ever talked about this when the bar is low (laughs) for expectation 
it's more fun. Like everyone thinks you want to be the place where it's like, no, like the scripted people were stressed out all the time. They had to replace friends. They were always like walking up the halls, nine of them with grids and lists. And we would hear a good pitch and make 10 of them and go straight to series. Right. I didn't have 80 people in my process, you know, meaning there's not all the pilot screenings and navel gazing because that stuff was going straight to series for the most part. It was just going on the air. So that just meant we had a lot more autonomy within a corporate structure than you typically do. But nowadays that business has become, there's many more people in that, in the unscripted business too. So there's not even that level of autonomy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, you know, it's funny when, when we started talking to NBC just a little bit ago and you started talking about Jason and Jen, I could hear like the octaves in your voice rise a little bit because I could sense you started to like have those old feelings of those it was old, fun. yeah, right. Those old early days. And I feel like everybody, and there's probably, look, there's probably assistants listening to this right now or production coordinators listening to this right now. And they haven't you know gone up the ladder yet. Maybe a manager of development or director of development is listening right now. Those manager of development days, those director of development days. The best job, man. Those are the best years. Like you think right now. You're like me, Jimmy. Right? Hilarious. Like you think. But do your speech. Do it. (laughs) It's hard right now. I'm talking over Jamila. I don't mean to. Just so people know, I can't see her. So like, I don't know when her mouth is about to move and when mine is. So if it sounds like I'm jumping on her, I'm not trying to. Um, but, But yeah, like those years, those are the most like prized years. Like I had a really good assistant run at NBC. Like I loved being at NBC because NBC was like my childhood network, like Cosby show, Golden Girls, Fresh Prince, Saved by the Bell, SNL, Knight Rider. Like I could go on and on. So just being on the lot for me as Ben's assistant, those were like some of the greatest years of my career. And I had no responsibility other than to make one person happy. And now I like relish (laughs) <laughs> those old days and the thought that I wish my life could be so simple that I only had one person to keep happy professionally. And wasn't that your experience? A hundred percent. That's why, I mean, look, anyone, including Jeff, who was my boss and promoted me a couple times. And I cried at least two of those times <laughs> because the responsibility of it was stressing me out. <laughs> I am the opposite of most of you. And for sure, I used to lecture Jason because he was so like hungry to get his own show. And I rem- we're gonna have to do this now, Jace, cause I'm, in- I'm not gonna tell the story, but I-, I should. I remember a particular show we were shooting and something happened on the set. Like it was a stunt show, somebody got injured. He was the only executive who was there at the time and it's stressful and nothing was his fault. It just was a lot of like, you know, stuff that you're the responsible adult there. And it hits you like, oh, it's me. And like I said, in unscripted, different from scripted, where there's like 90 executives, it's you in unscripted. Like there's not six VPs (laughs) that are there. So if something happens and you guys all know who work on the forum, whether that's those house shows where people are tested, you know, there's a lot of legality around the situations you put people in in those shows that... One is a time suck when you're shooting them, and two can be very stressful. So I, I for sure can love the form, but it's of the jobs I've done, one of the most intense for sure. 
you know, it's so, it's so interesting to hear that perspective because again, you've, you've been on both sides of, of the fence. And one of the things I wanted to get into later, I wanted to kind of go through the pros and cons of like the pros of working in the reality side and the cons as compared to scripted. But one of the things I've come across and you just touched on it is like crisis management, right? So I've, I have found that in the script, when I'm working on a scripted show, the people I'm working with on the scripted show sometimes think something is a crisis or this is like, oh my God, this is awful. Like, oh, what are we gonna... And from my reality show experience, I'm like, wait, this is, a, this is a crisis to you people? This is a problem? Because on the reality TV world, yeah, right. it's like someone is physically harmed, someone got arrested, right. someone's husband's going to jail. And I just find like the mentality of reality TV showrunners and executives of what they face in terms of quote unquote crisis is, is kind of a different level than what scripted people think is and isn't a problem. But am I overgeneralizing things there? No, I, I would, I would say I agree with you 150%. Okay. I think the scripted size, as you said, those are more like crises of ego. <laughs> you know, it's more like, cause you're dealing with a certain level of talent in front of or behind the camera Yeah. rather than like you said, real life and death stakes. Like I have had a woman who was not on her meds who went nuts in a house on the weekend. And there's video of her like, you know, pulling out her hair extensions and talking to herself. And you're in crisis mode of, oh, this is a mental health crisis in the middle of our production. And you have to take care of that person first and foremost. Like you said, make sure they're safe and okay. And and the TV show stuff of like, what's going in the edit? Is it the first thing you're dealing with. I think I enjoyed unscripted in the beginning because part of what was fun was the unknown. And you like, you never get back the very first survivor where Richard Hatch was the villain mm-hmm. and won. Like, yeah, I mean, that show has so become a thing on a thing now where it's just, everybody knows that you're going to plot like that show and big brother. And when you talk about class of other execs, but also just from a genre perspective, that idea of colluding and any of that stuff, you hadn't seen it before. Mm-hmm. So there was a novelty to it that felt less cynical, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, so for me, it's harder for me to enjoy the shows now because everything feels so um, deliberate and crafted. You know, like if you're going to go on one of those shows, you, you know what beats to hit to get the most camera time. At least that's how it feels to me as having seen behind the curtain. You know, I don't, you know, how do you feel as a producer producing it? Um, and that's just less interesting to me than when I worked on shows where I legitimately did not know that Omarosa, the first season of Apprentice, would be the one to be the crazy one. <laughs> so when people are saying, like, you guys manipulate those things, and I'm like, I, we did not know. Like, there was this other kid that we were like, oh, he's going to pop. And Trump voted him out, like, in the second episode. Mm-hmm. And we were all like, oh, crap, what are we going to do? But again, part of the fun was like, who knew she was going to do what she did? So anyway, for me, the the things that were not predictable were m- what makes that form unique. And as it got more contrived, that became less of the process. Mm-hmm. How, long, how, many years you, how many years were you at NBC? Did you go to Bravo from NBC? I did. I did both for a little while. 
because Gaspin had 90 jobs. I should listen. I should have listened to his episode before I did this. Probably. He was great. Pretty much what he did is what I did. So Gaspin was doing both. All of the Bravo execs were in New York. Um, I honestly was having just sort of like a morality crises, like every couple of weeks about some of the content in unscripted. Mm-hmm. So I was having a hard time. Like I just, I knew what was going to get a rating and I wasn't comfortable with it. And I remember doing a dating show where, and the show never aired. So it doesn't even matter. It was a pilot and it was the elimination. And all of you who have watched these and shot them, you know, you you know, who's going to be emotional and you have the camera shots ready. And the girl that was going to go that we thought was really going to lose it. Didn't she was very composed. And we're all sitting there, we're like, crap, you know, like that's, that just blew our ending. And again, this is early days, not the best production. And they broke the camera crews and everyone kind of walked off. She was like five minutes later, bawling her eyes out to one of the casting executives, but nobody's recording it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously what you need is that. And my job was to be like, get a camera on her. Like, that's what you need. And I did it. But like, there was a human part of me that was like, I'm not saying anyone who makes that call isn't human. I am saying I felt very uncomfortable knowing that that woman was aware that she didn't want to look a certain way and try to have a private moment. But my job was to get that private moment on camera and I was very conflicted about making those calls. No, that I, it's so funny. I think you're the first person I've talked to that has ever told me they felt conflicted about those moral and ethical decisions you have to make producing reality TV. Really? Yeah. Like, well, like most, but look, and I also stopped doing it. And I'm, and I'm like, most of the people you talk to probably yeah. kept doing it. It, for me, was... I mean, I said, I'm an English major. My mother's in theater. I very much love the creative process and the manipulation aspect, whether people want to use that word or not is up to them, was something that I understood, Mm. but did not, for me, was not what I wanted to do with storytelling or not the way that I wanted to maneuver in storytelling. That's a big part of the reason I ultimately, that I went to scripted. So it was the was the scripted move from there? Did you go to twentieth from there? Where did you go from Bravo? Um, well, so I did, and honestly, so I went to Bravo again. Honestly, as NBC, and I say this in the best of ways, the shows were doing well, and I would go and like cry in Jeff's office every couple weeks <laughs> when I'd have to like approve some like stunt. Like no joke, there was a show where they wanted to like lob bull testicles at someone. You know what I mean? And I was just like, what am I doing with my life? This is crazy. There were fear factor days, you guys. It was like big, you know, stunt shows or whatever. You're like, they're never going to ask me to, they're never going to ask me back to speak at Spellman with, with shows oh like God. this. It's, but I say this and like, dude, Mike Darnell and Fox had huge success. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. a crazy time of like mean spirited shows where they were lying to people and hijacking. There was the chair in the chamber that were torturing it, people. It like, was the era. Is the era it was the, ratcheting up. Yeah, it was the era of the swan. It was the era of right. Joe, Joe Millionaire. Like, Joe yeah. Millionaire, right. So I'm like, it was the height of that on the mm-hmm. network side. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I see where this train is going. And that's not, I get it, but it's not my bag. Um, so... 
Craig Plestis came in though. He did though, actually. <laughs> Craig has kind of been my class. I don't know if you if you interviewed Craig yet. I haven't. Um, so there were other like Plestis who had been in our promo department. I think Jen moved over. Other people were starting to move into the network side at that point because literally it had been, I think, Kurt, myself, and Jason. And as the show started taking off, we, you know, we needed more people. And then they put Gaspin over Bravo. And I literally, I think, went to him because I was just like constantly like, I don't know. And I was like, well, what about that arts and culture channel you're going to run? <laughs> what, maybe I'll go do that. That might fit my my patina better. Right. And it was like Cirque du Soleil and Jim Lipton. You're laughing, Jimmy, but this is legit my life choices that I made. No, it's um, funny. It's Columbo. funny to hear you. It's funny to hear you describe Bravo as the what did you just call it? I know. What did it you was call arts and culture, you guys? Arts and it culture. Was arts and culture. And Jim Lipton was getting awards and they had like Cirque du Soleil documentary series. The Columbo repeats did well. And I genuinely remember him saying, I don't know what I'm gonna do with that channel. Like, what do you <laughs> what do you want? And I was like, I don't, I just feel like that might be more my speed. So long story short, I did both. So okay. as I said, because like Francis Berwick, you know, who's very, very high up now at NBC Universal, Fran and all of the Bravo people were in New York. So I started doing sort of like West Coast Bravo. Um, and again, at that time, like if I heard a pitch for the network that wasn't big enough, we might just buy it and do it for Bravo. Like we literally did a uh, poker show, like celebrity uh, poker showdown that they pitched us for the network. And we were like, ah, it's not big enough there but let's put it on Bravo. Two things came to mind just now. One, when you were at Bravo, did you go, were you in the Burbank office, like by Morton's Steakhouse? I was. Right? You know what's sad? What was the karaoke bar across the street? Oh, Dimples. You know Dimples isn't there anymore. You know what's there now? I do know that what's there. It's a Whole Foods now. Oh, I did know that. I live around the corner. Why am I acting so surprised? They tore- I live in the valley. <laughs> That's right. You're like right there still. I forget. You're there. Oh my You're- God, I live right. There's also a Chick-fil-A though, Jimmy. And Chick-fil-A is delicious. Ch- <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Even though I don't approve of their opinions about homosexuality. Thank you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said it. I'm glad you no, said it. No, they're terrible. It's a chicken sandwich. It's their fine. politics are not great. So the first Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, I think Gaspin Green was probably the first thing he greenlit under that ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as I said earlier where that idea of like nobody has expectations is fun people just didn't have any expectations of anything so the fact that that show one was a great show and two had an amazing marketing plan it just all of a sudden there was momentum there yeah. um, that was fun and I mean I know like show. Jane and Dan have been on your show and yep. so like those guys in Project Runway or like there was just cool fun stuff we got to do in that period that as I said nobody was really paying attention so there was a freedom to it that was really fun but that those two shows must have like fed your your soul a little bit though they're awesome yeah they're great again I love that channel it was awesome okay so then the scripted move though was what was it 20th where did you go after Bravo I went to 20th after that to do comedy. And like I said, there was, I really wasn't looking to make that move. Um, Executive named Kwan Fung was going to 20th to run comedy. I knew him through other, just knew him. And as I said, at that particular time, because scripted comedy was really struggling, I think several comedy departments were looking to supplement their traditional scripted execs with execs with a different skill set. So because I'd worked on like Last Comic Standing, 
or Kathy Griffin's D-List, and we had done an improv show, Significant Others. Like, I, the stuff I was doing at NBC and Bravo was comedic, but not traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I mean. I think that's why that particular period, people like Johnny and myself and Susan Levinson, people came to us to ask us to shift over because comedy was struggling and there was success in comedy in the alternative space. If that makes that's, sense? That's so funny. I don't remember... I don't remember the era of like broadcast comedy struggles. Oh my God. It was so long, Jimmy. Cause you're only, cause you're, no, I'm don't do that. Think, like post, no, no, no. Here's what I'd say. Okay. Post friends. Yeah. And Will and Grace going off. Mm-hmm. There was a, before the office took off, there was a big dip where like nobody had, like everybody tried to do like Joey or, you know, like spinoffs of like the pretty multicams, yeah. which had been the thing all through the nineties and they yeah. weren't working. Cause like, was, what is that? Yeah. That era before the office takes off is, it is was a, pretty people and multicams is two and a half men a thing yet. I don't know. I have to look that up, but you're talking just comedy in general. So like two and a half men and I, yeah, you're right. Like there was that little era before like, the Parks and Recs came and before Modern Family came. I guess there yeah, was like, like single a lo- camera. Single camera was not a thing yet. It was, not, it it was, was very much yeah. like, again, you were at NBC, like the old days of NBC were like attractive people in multi-camera shows. Yeah. Um, and then I think those started like young friend ensembles and all. They just, nothing was hitting in the same way. Huh. Um, Cause like NBC at one used to be like three nights of comedy, like Monday nights were comedy, you know, like that whole network was like a comedy network. Yeah. And it's down to like one night now. Yeah. Um, well, I mean the state, the state of broadcast comedy now is horrible, is fascinating to me, is, fa- is fascinating. And I feel like, you know, you look, you were the head, you were the head of comedy at ABC, uh, spoiler alert for people uh, in terms of the Jamila Hunter timeline. Um, when you left in October of 2018, you were the head of comedy at ABC. Comedy is hard. Oh. Here's what I will say in all sincerity. Yeah. You said this about doing both. And I 100% love, like I did, com- worked in scripted comedy for over a decade. It is incredibly talented people. It is hard. It's hard. It is so hard to be funny. And even now that I'm working on dramas, I literally have said to so many of my friends that work in dramas, I'm like, you bastards, you knew this was easier. And they do know it's easy. Like everybody yeah. knows it. Yeah. It is the hardest thing. And no one's trying to not be funny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but we all digress no. into that. But it's really, it's like lightning in a bottle when all of those pieces come together. And anyone you talk to, like I've heard people like Kevin Riley and Warren Littlefield, you know, who've been around huge comedies. And they all talk about how there's something about it that is somewhat alchemy. Like you have the wrong piece of casting, the wrong director, you know, like any one piece is off yeah. and you don't have Seinfeld. Um, and when you have Seinfeld, it's obvious and genius, but it wasn't on the front end of it when it was a stand-up and no woman was in the cast. You know, like there's yeah. all the things that make it um, to change the game is uncomfortable um, so that is my long-winded way of saying comedy is hard and wonderful when you get it right, but super hard and super hard for network. Yes. And I think the streaming and cable landscape, which their half hours, the tone of them has a little bit more, um, flexibility yep. and the expectation for like a network half hour 
let alone your act break, like the restrictions of the form make it one again that I have the utmost respect for the writers that every week churn out 20 or not every week, every year do 22 episodes, right? Not eight or 10, like 22 to 25 and have to tell a story with four act breaks that makes sense, is really funny, has emotion and lands. And it's, it's, you know, of the things I'm the most proud of, but incredibly hard. No, you're, it's, it, we're, we're going into that next era now and it's the post Big Bang, post Modern Family era. And I think that's when that's going to be the inflection point we look at as when the whole broadcast comedy world changed. Right. I want, I want to get to own. You arrive at own. I, what year, what year is that? Is that like Oh nine? Sure. I'm bad with years. <laughs> let's say Oh nine. I really am. It's around there. I should have pulled out my resume. It were you part of, were you part of, it well, you, launched. Yeah. So it's pre-launch. So you're part of the pre-launch, pre-launch team at own. And I want to like remind people that don't realize we're talking a pre OTT era. We're talking pre-social media, filling our appetites for, for content like it is now. So when Oprah Winfrey announces that she's launching her own channel, OWN was like the hottest ticket in town at a time where the cable business is still very much booming. So I would have to think that it was like a sweepstakes for the amount of executives that wanted to go work at OWN when Oprah started to put her team together. Um, and I would think that it would have have to have been extremely exciting for you to be part of the launch team that was that was brought in. There was a theme song that sounded a lot like I Got a Golden Ticket from Willy Wonka for all of it. I'm just kidding. For those first ones. Um, no, for sure. I mean, I to be clear, though, I wasn't the first. Like there was Robin Schwartz, Nina. Like there was a group that was like the, the first golden ticket winners. It was like Christina Norman. Well, Christina was my golden ticket group, but I'm saying before me and Christina, there was another, it was like Nina Wass, Robin Schwartz and Maria. Doesn't matter. Got it. So that team had been the first golden ticket winners. And there was a whole strategy of like script. I don't remember. I kind of remember. And I remember again, being on the sidelines, like coach tag me in. It's basic cable. I can do this coach. Why haven't they called me yet? And then I did get a call about it. Okay, so um, got, you got to walk me through the interview process over there. Did, did you, you sat with Oprah as part of the hiring process? I did. It was really quick. I was back at NBC, actually. It doesn't matter. Because I, I was back at NBC when Ben was there, when you were there probably. Yep. And I was, doesn't matter. I had kind of, a, I was thinking about whether I was going to stick around or not. And it kind of came up randomly that I wound up going to lunch with Christina Norman. Mm-hmm. And she had just gotten there as the other team was starting to transition out. And <clears throat> it was just more timing. So she didn't even know what she needed yet. But she was like, oh, wait, you seem like you have tools that I could use. So it was relatively fast because of some time, some other stuff I had going on where I believe I met her. And then she had me go have lunch with Tom Preston, who's like MTV rock star, you know, created MTV. Like, who Hall doesn't want to do that? Yeah. yeah, like Hall of Famers. Um, I had written up, you know, like my dream, like here's what I would do, my dream own strategy. So I'd sent that to her and Tom. So then I think Christina called me on like a Saturday and she called my cell phone and was like, so we want you, can you go meet? 
Oprah tomorrow. And I was like, tomorrow? She's like, yeah, she wants you to come up for lunch. And I was like, by myself? No, come, come up from- <laughs> Is anybody up, else going? Come up from where to where? From where I live to Montecito, to the Montecito, Montecito house. I just wanted you um, to say so Montecito. She, oh, you just wanted me to say, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're like, she's like, we sent, we sent your ideas to her and she wants to sit down with you. And I generally kept saying to her by myself and she's like, yes, by yourself. You don't need to just go. So I don't say anything to anybody because you don't, you know, like, I don't know what's, what is, I don't get the job like that. People are going to ask me about it forever and I'll be a loser. I had a friend staying with me at the time. I don't think I told her at first. And then like that evening, I get a call on my cell phone and somebody's, she's like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. We're getting your lunch together. What do you eat? And I was like, Oh, who is this? And she's like, Oh, I'm sorry. It's Oprah. So she was just very casual. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I don't even, you know, I kind of just get through my lunch order and I hang up and then I go to my friend and I'm like, so I need you to not make a big deal about this and don't say anything because I don't know what's going to happen. But Oprah just called me and asked what I wanted for lunch tomorrow. I'm going to her house. And she was just like, what? And I was like, and she kept starting asking questions. I was like, because I don't want to go any, I'm not going anymore into it. We're just going to see how this rides out. I don't know. Um, and Gaspin knows this cause I had called him and I say, and again, I say this in with all, like, she is amazing. She's a mogul, she's incredibly smart. Um, I've also been around enough famous people to know, you don't know that like, that could be a bad job. You know, like if she's one of those mean celebrities that we're reading about in the tabloids now, I don't know. So as much as I had huge respect for her empire, I wasn't that person that was like such a Oprah worshiper okay. that I was like, oh God, I don't even know how to talk. If that makes any sense. I was, yeah. and I remember saying to Gaspin, I was like, is this, he's like, it could be a good job or it could not. I don't know. Celebrity, think, those businesses are tricky. I think it's incredible. The first time you spoke with Oprah, she was taking your lunch order. Yeah. She, she's very chill. I for sure got to the house. Her hair was like in a ponytail. She had on flip-flops. Whatever we had for lunch, I was like, this tea is amazing. She's like, girl, that ain't nothing but some Snapple. I was like, really? She's a normal person. And she works her butt off. Like literally anyone who ever, not that people ask, but I think, again, we hype celebrities up. And Jimmy, you know this, even from the people you've been around, the ones that are incredibly successful like her She's a worker. Like she is not one of those people who just like signs her name and other people do the work. Mm -hmm. The reason she has the businesses, the schools, the blah is because she is like rolling up her sleeves and in it. And I have a huge respect for that. Well, you said she was a worker, but when you had your first initial meeting with her, was she able to give you her full attention? like during that interview or was she kind of being pulled and distracted with a million things? Cause no. she's like the busiest person Mm-mm. in the world. No, for sure. I mean, it was a Sunday. So like, again, it wasn't like we were in her office uh-huh. behind the scenes of a tape night. So yeah, no, if anything, I would say, I say, yes, she's very busy a worker, but I say that to say she does the work. Can I, can her I name's on things she doesn't work on, but she's very focused so again, if anything, it was clear she had actually read my proposal. Yep. We had very specific conversations about it. Impressive. We had very specific conversations. That's what I mean. I was like, oh no, she actually read it. She actually knows what she wants to do. Yep. This isn't a celebrity who's like woo-woo in the clouds. Right. And doesn't understand the business that they're building. Um, if anything, I think, um, and again, I think anybody who's worked at that channel then or since will tell you. It's an incredible amount of work to build any business. 
let alone to build a business from scratch. And she had as many businesses as she already had running. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that any human being, that's a lot. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, I, I, the one the one anecdote I have from a time I went to own when they were on Miracle Mile in that office in the in the early days of own was I went in for a meeting and I think we had a pitch or something and somebody pokes their head in the door and my executives all of a sudden kind of like get fidgety and I'm like oh what, what's going on they're like oh um, it's almost meditation hour we need to get out of this conference room and I was like what and I I, I was like wait med- there's a meditation hour. Like as a co- like a comp- company thing, they're like, yeah, we get together in the conference room and we do meditation. And at the time, I remember thinking that was odd. But now, looking back and knowing everything I know now about like mental health and you know wellness, and I'm like, that was kind of incredible. Like I thought that was like part of the corporate culture there. And looking back, I'm impressed with that was part of like a a, <laughs> a weekly routine on the schedule for employees. That that was not there when I was there yet, but they had launched by then, I assume, right? They had, they had. Yeah. There you go. So before we were on the air, we were not meditating. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I will say. <laughs> I was in the Wilshire office, but we were not meditating yet. I don't yeah. have so much time with you, so I'm going to zip through some questions I had. But you go on to ABC, you end up running comedy ABC, you go work for Kenya Barris at Collabo for a bit. Now you're at Freeform and you're the head of current. And the way it's characterized in the announcement when they announced yeah. your role there, it was you're the head of current and also overseeing alternative programming, which for most people would be two separate jobs. But it's like you have two, two very important jobs because you're overseeing alternative, but also all current at Freeform. Am I characterizing that correctly? Um, that is technically my job, Jimmy. It is. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big effing job. It's a big effing job. Um, it is, but I say this kind of in the same breath that we just talked about alternative being a lot of work. When you go from like a job like own where there was a schedule with zero, Jimmy, like when I got there and there had been a group for a year and they were like, oh, here's our schedule seven days a week. There's nothing. (laughs) It is like you never get more intense than that. Oh, and by the way, it's the most powerful black woman in the world building the network. Like, don't drop the ball. Like, there's not actually anything more stressful than that is what I would say. And also no shows or uh, projects would get approved at OWN without Oprah actually approving it. So you were basically programming it to the taste of one person, which can't be easy. It was a very unique dynamic. I would say pre-launch for sure. Yeah. And again, obviously I can't speak to, you know, they found their own rhythm and a voice and all of that sort of thing. Um, But I think again, at that time, she was still doing her show in Chicago. You know, like, I think there was a lot lot. of expectations that Discovery had Mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily in alignment with what she had. So any of us that, again, the executives before me and with me and Christine, like, and probably after, if I were to, like, just as a basic generalization, there were different business model expectations for discovery Mm. from what her, not even her as just individual from what her brand expectations were. I think Mm. Um, I genuinely just to myself would be like, did they get drunk in Vegas and get married? (laughs) Like there just weren't the same basic, you know, a lot of discovery other networks are, you know, very low budget, like TLC and discovery ID and, you know, and that's, 
she's HBO. She's like, wait a minute, I don't need to do 80 shows. I'll just do two great ones. So I think there were just very sort of basic um, differences that over the years had to get worked out. Mm -hmm. I'm a very good friend who's still there. And I remember her saying to me one day, she's like, oh, it was going to take five years just because everyone needed to be speaking the same language, if that makes any sense. No, it makes total Um, sense. But that's what I meant about startups and like a startup with two very defined brands needing to find a middle ground. And they found their their third partner in Tyler Perry over there to take off some of the budget weight off of Discovery when it came to their programming. And he's really helped them make that network into what it is. Um, Although he's gone to BET now, right? Has he's going he? to, he's, I, he has a bunch of stuff on BET now. Yeah, but he's not like, a, he hasn't like signed like an exclusivity deal or anything, correct? I don't know Tyler Perry's business, Jimmy. You got to get <laughs> him on your show. I don't either. He's, he's producing shows in your old stopping grounds in Atlanta. He's, he's got, in the ATL. He's yeah. in the bubble. He's got the ATL bubble going on. Tyler is doing his thing. Um, okay. But I do want to go to back to what, something you asked me at the very beginning because I didn't answer it. Oh, okay. Which was just about YTV in general. Yeah. And I'm glad you said the Cosby show because it makes me sad that you can't say it now because it's yeah. a tainted memory for everybody. But I, you know, I I was an avid reader. I am when I have time. I love stories. My mom was in theater. I grew up an African-American kid in Orange County, California, where you don't see a lot of African-Americans. So to see the impact that shows like A Different World and the Cosby show had mm. on how people perceived myself and my family was incredibly impactful. So mm. not only for myself to be able to look and see people who look like me when I didn't see them every day around me, but then to see that there was a respect level, I hate to say it, but it's true, that people had and an understanding they had because those shows normalize certain conversations. As I said, I went to a historically black college Literally, Mr. Cosby and his wife built a, a building there. Their kids right. went there. The The fact that most people who aren't Black even know what those schools are because of a different world is an impact that will never be taken away despite, you know, the man himself being flawed. That, to me, is the impact of storytelling. That is, you. we all want to be entertainers and all of that, but the real impact on society. And it's why I'm incredibly proud of the sort of work that we did at ABC with shows like Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish. We're there for sure entertaining, but I also think reflective of our society and hopefully advanced conversations yep. for people. And not to sound super corny, but like actually could help people feel a little less alone in their worlds where I think increasingly we do. I think yeah. that's the, to me, the like, artsy fartsy part of why I love entertainment and why, like I said, I wanted to do TV and not film. Cause I'm like, no, when you're by yourself, I freaking watched Sally McBeal and cried my eyes out every week. Cause I was going through a breakup and her and Billy and Vonda Shepard, you guys are all too young. Look it up on Hulu or somewhere. I'm just saying the catharsis that comes with good storytelling that's episodic. I still find incredibly amazing and impactful. And it's what I love about what we're doing with the shows at Freeform now. And the reason I went there 
which not that you were going to ask that, but I looked at the shows they were making and the demographic they're targeting, which is Gen Z and millennials Mm -hmm. and the potential to use storytelling to have an impact on them in a time that's really tough. And again, they're entertaining shows. Like they're all sexy and partying, but they're also talking about meaningful things. And I think that's important in the time we're living in. No, I'm, I'm so glad you circled back to that. Th- thanks for that. And and again, now at Freeform, you're still in business with uh, Collabo and Kenya because Grownish is is the a different world for this right. generation. You know, and it's. It, I think it's connecting with that Gen Z audience in much the same way that a different world was. You know, inspiring teenagers in the nineties. It's an important. Yeah, I literally, show. they did an event like a screening there when I first started in January. Of um, at Spelman, they screened an episode and had some of the cast come and talk, and somebody sent us like one of our PR people sent a video of a bunch of kids in the auditorium singing the theme song to Gronish. And I literally sent it to Kenya because I was like, how cool is it? Like, yeah. when we were in college, like you said, that was a different world. And that was Whitley and Kadeem Hart. Like, there were certain yeah. characters that everybody was invested in. And he's now created a world that those kids are, it's for sure, I like, mean, that's so us funny. living out our youth. But it's absolutely super, super cool. That's so funny you say that about the theme song because that that is kind of like the moment you know you've arrived, right? When people can put yeah. the theme song up on the jukebox in the bar and everyone's singing along to it. That's like the, the best. Like, like the Fresh Prince in a different world. Like that's that's kind of when you know. It's like when um I have the Brandon Tartikoff book right behind me. The, the last Aww. great, right? Have you read that book, by the way? I have. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's awesome. amazing. And he talks about like the development of the Cosby show and like the different ideas that were pitched and what should like Cliff's job be in the show, you know, and, and where, where should they live? But anyway, um, you know, in the book, he talks about how he knew Miami Vice had arrived when he started seeing dudes on the streets dressing, uh, dressing like right, Don right. Johnson. That horrible right. blazers. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, what an incredible experience for Canada that the universe he's created through the sitcom and you got to be a part of it. I want, I want to zip through some questions though, cause I don't have much time with you. Okay. So I want to just. All right. Get, we get have through. like four minutes before I okay. have to go actually talk about, yeah, some cast members on. Okay. Uh, pitching etiquette, pet peeves that producers do in pitches. I don't, I can't say to you that I have two that are like, oh, I hate when people come in and do X. Okay. I would not say that. That's fine. I think. I can say this, though, in terms of what I think things are, and I hate to say this, and I probably got it from Gaspin, having a really good, concise, like, logline and title so people know what you're talking about up front is so important. Again, I'm an English major, so I'm like, it's like when you write your thesis statement in an essay. I hate, I do hate when people have a long, rambly intro that's like a bunch of research, and and I'm like, what's your show? If I at least know what your show is, then you can give me all the other context. I'm a nerd for that. But I I don't love when people start and you're literally in your mind trying to wrap your head around just like, what's the show? Also, if you don't have the title yet, don't pitch it yet. Like some people like take out the project. Like we don't really have the title yet. No, it's not ready then. Like it's, you're, it's really true. You're shortchanging yourself. And by the way, yourself. if you have a great title, like when I tell you we have, we bought things because it was a great title. <laughs> And then figured out the show a hundred percent. Jeff Gaskin did it many times. Yeah, totally. I, I I've had an idea that I've been playing with for seven years. I never have I, a title. I, I didn't have a title. 
I didn't have a title and, and I just, it just occurred to me a few months ago what the title should be. And I actively started developing it and I finally sold it because I finally had a title to go with it right. and it helped people right. see what it was and how they're going to market it more than anything. Um, Very important. Okay. Real quick. Last question. If you weren't working in TV, you'd be doing what now? I do not have the skill for this, but I would be studying like neuroscience somewhere. <laughs> I said, really? I don't have the skill, Jimmy. I'm really intrigued by the human brain the older I've gotten. I just don't, we don't understand enough about it. I wish I was more into science when I was a kid. Um, And I like genuinely read a lot of books about like our mind and our brain and our brain chemistry and like how our brains work. Cause I find it incredibly interesting now, but I'm way too old to do anything with that. (laughs) You could have given me a thousand guesses and that would, I, I thought it was going to be on your toes, Jimmy. I thought it was going to be like English professor. I thought that's where you No, were you know what? It would have been that if you'd asked me that five years ago. And again, literally anyone who listens to this, who knows me, I've been going back to grad school since I left undergrad. Huh. <laughs> I've been quitting and going back to school. Um, so wait, do you mean, do, wait, do you mean every do, couple of years? Wait, do you mean that metaphorically or are you being serious right no. now? I'm being dead serious. Like in, if you interview Jason Dinsmore or go back to any, um, Jeff, I'd be like, Jeff, I'm out. I'm going back. I'm going to school wow. all the time. My dad's, my dad's a professor. My husband's in education. Like it's, I will go back and get a degree in something someday, but what that will be evolves. And I will quote Kenya Barris, who won't listen to your podcast, no. I doubt. No. But Kenya once said to me when I told him, so there's a really um, a great writer named Felicia Henderson mm-hmm. who got her doctorate and she's a writer. And I was having dinner with her. I'm like, how'd you find the time? Like, how'd you do it? So I'm telling Kenya about it. And he's like, do you just never want to get married? Just going to be a spinster? Is that what you're going to do? So maybe that's the note we live on. Leave on, guys. <laughs> if you're... Uh, but I did get married, but I don't have my degree. But I don't you know where I'm both. going with that. You can have both. Can Thanks, I for have do- both? Thanks for doing yeah, this. Yeah, my husband does have a lot more degrees than I do. The last thing I will say is in that office that neither of us use, the people who were helping us like organize it, we're going to frame our degrees. And like so my da- my husband has a couple of masters and a doctorate, right? So they were like, we see all of your husband's degrees. Do you just have the one? And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I only have one. So they only they just hung my one master's. If Keep, you had a website, Jimmy, I would give you a picture of just my d- one degree. <laughs> and then they only hung his doctorate from SC. I was like, thanks, guys. Keep keep another space on the wall. I I, I have a yeah, feeling I have, I have a feeling there will my be my neurology from my from my yes. degree in neurology. I'm gonna get it, Jimmy. I have a feeling um, it's gonna happen. I don't doubt it. Thanks for doing never this. Never happening. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to get Jason Dinsmore on here. That is my goal after this. He can't say no now. We're leading the campaign. God, I'm going to tell him I said his name 15 times. He can't hide. Thanks for having me and reminding me that TV can be fun (laughs) when we're not in a pandemic. Thanks for doing it on a busy Friday. You're the best. Bye, Jimmy. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. 